You may, you may be seated. You may be seated. You know, I've been wanting to do something for a while, and uh, in light of all that's been going on in our country, um, with all of the, you know, the shootings and the killings and the police killings and this kind of thing, um, they, we have here at Fellowship two officers who are here every Sunday morning just to make sure everything is okay and we're doing what we needed to do. And I like to bring them up and I like for us to honor them. And uh, <laughs> there you go. Once again, good. Yeah. So. Yeah. I love you, man. That's great. Great. This is, uh, these are officers David McNamara and Davis Gardner. And uh, like I said, they, they're here and we just want you to know that we, you know, we love, value, and appreciate you. We don't take for granted the fact that you wake up every morning. You don't know what's going to happen during the day. Um, but you're out there protecting and serving us. And uh, no matter uh, the ethnicity or background or whatever, you, you do your job to protect and serve. And I know the city of Roswell probably doesn't pay you enough, so we'll talk to the mayor about that. And, but... Uh, <laughs> I want you well taken care of because we benefit from that. But at any rate, we're just really, really grateful to God for you. And we want you to know that. And I want us to commit to pray even over the next few days or next month for these officers and others uh, that they would be safe and uh, that you, you, you will feel that you're valued and appreciated. I know there's a lot of swirling going on in the media right now, but I want you to know that there's one joint here that loves you and appreciates you. And... Uh, so, so, yeah. Yeah. so I'd like for you to stretch your hand toward them and let's pray for them. Holy Father, we just thank you for these men. Thank you, O oh God, for their families. And thank you, God, that uh, they stepped up to the plate and said, we want to give our lives to protect and serve. And Lord, we pray that you will protect them that you will surround them with angels, Lord, and uh, that you will give them encouragement uh, for every negative thing that is said. I pray that you'll give them 10 positive things and that you will just uh, let them know that what they do matters. It counts, Lord. And, and I pray that you'll protect their families, Lord God. And, and I pray for long, healthy lives for these dudes that they'll retire and be able to enjoy their retirement. God, watch over their hearts. And, and we pray for law enforcement all over the country. It, this is a tough time right now. And, and we pray that you will, you will bridge the divide and that you'll bring a sense of love and appreciation on both sides of this thing. And that we'll all realize that we're created in the image of God. We have value and dignity and we matter to you. Thank you for these men, Lord. Thank you again for their lives and for what they do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, man. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Really, really appreciate it. It's a good thing, isn't it? It's a, it's a good thing. And once again, I just, I don't need to say this to you, but let's, let's not let everybody politicize things and tell us how to think about stuff, okay? All right. Amen? Amen. 
Yeah, let's let the scriptures and doing what's right. It's very, very good. Well, if you have a Bible, I want you to open it to the book of Esther. Uh, Bible or device or tablet or whatever. Uh, make sure you're opening it to Esther and not to Pokemon or whatever. Uh, I'm getting a little bit sick of that stuff. Anybody here sick of that? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I mean, no? Okay. <laughs> Uh, see you after the service. We, you can come up and repent right now. We'll, <laughs> that's kind of thing. I, I want to say, too, as you're going there, if you're visiting with us, thank you for coming. And, and, and this is a wonderful church. I, you won't find a better group of people anywhere. I didn't say that we're perfect, but we have a perfect Savior. Amen? And we're getting in that, going in that direction. So if you've been hanging out here a little bit and want to find out uh, what we're all about, even if you're visiting the first time, Myself and my wife will be back here in Guest Central. We'd love to say hey to you, and our staff will be there. We'd love to, we'd love to uh, answer any questions that you have. Let me also say a word about a little bit of a preview on a series that we're going to start next week. Um, I don't want to come across sensational, and uh, you know, you you can so promote something that you're selling without a product, and that's not the intention here. But I, I, I'm going to make a statement here that, that may surprise you, but um, we're going to be doing a four-part series beginning next week, and uh, for any number of reasons, I believe that this is the most significant series that I've done at this church in my almost 11 years here. And it's a very important series for us. Um, the focus of the series is about where we're going. Now, it's not going to be about big numbers and this kind of thing, but it has to do with our mission statement and what we're really all about. We've entitled the series Ignite, and the subtitle is Creating a Movement for Making and Multiplying Disciples. Now, you've heard us use the term disciple before, but one of my abiding concerns is that I, I really do not want to have lip service to our mission statement. I don't want that. I, I, it, it has to be real. It has to be real on a personal level. And uh, that we were born to reproduce. We were born to touch the hearts and lives of other people. And we've got to run away from a self-serving Christianity that we all can get seduced into. You know, my needs, my understanding of the Bible, my answers being met, my family being happy, uh, this stuff happening to me. Uh, and even in some of our small groups, you know, we got to be careful that they do not degenerate into little, you know, fraternities or sororities or folks that I've hung out with. And don't get me wrong, it was good to have friends for a long time, but we were born to reproduce. And so when we talk about making disciples, we're not talking about reproducing an evangelical subculture that is very knowledgeable. But we're talking about aligning ourselves. And so would you pray about this series? It is pivotal to what we're really all about. And, uh, and we're trusting that God will move us down the pike along those lines. That we're all reaching out and we're all making disciples and we're all looking for opportunities to share the hope of the gospel, to pour into other people and to challenge them not to become another Christian cul-de-sac, but to, to keep pursuing the heart of Jesus. That's what it's really, really all about. Amen? Amen. That was a little weak, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> if you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in Esther. Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter, chapter 8. Holy Father, we once again ask that you'll speak to our hearts. Father, open your word. Take us to where we need to be, O oh God. Um, 
we need you. Uh, we need you to help us. Uh, may this book and the message from this incredible narrative resonate deeply with our hearts and minds. God, as we close off this series, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we will internalize the lessons that we have learned. God, we pray that you'll help us uh, to be all that you want us to be and to align our lives with the principles and the things that you say in the word of God. May they not just satisfy our minds and answer our questions, but spirit of the living God, may they transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, this is our last, final, number five message here in our series on the book of, on the book of Esther. I, I've been saying this for the last few weeks that we've entitled the book, uh, uh, the series, Always in His Care. But I had a little catch about that as we got into the series because, you know, there's something that every preacher or anybody teaches really struggles with. In our desire to make uh, the truth of God's word come alive and apply to all of us, every once in a while we run the risk, we run the risk of not saying what it really says uh, or to so, to so dilute it for the sake of people understanding it that it prizes away, it prizes it away from the author's original intent for writing the book. So I just want to say this again. I know I've said it several times already. I want to say this again, that really the book of Esther is in the Bible, not to be hyper-individualized necessarily, but really the purpose of the book is to show God's passion for preserving his people. That's what the book of Esther is really all about. It's the preservation of the Jews. Now, there's some interesting secondary applications that we've gotten into, but that's what the narrative is all about. It's about God behind the scenes, moving the scenes. The name God is not even in the book of Esther. But you can't miss his presence, and you can't miss his hand in everything that takes place in this book. I suggested that there are five words to help us to understand the book. It's a book of movement. It's a narrative. It's going someplace. It's headed toward this grand crescendo. That's where we are right now in the book. But these five words help, help us to, to understand where things are going. The first word uh, uh, is the word favor, favor. Esther falls into favor with King Ahasuerus and becomes his wife, favor. The next word is the word scheme, scheme. The key person behind this scheme is a guy by the name of Haman who's way up there in Ahasuerus's administration. He orchestrates this amazing diabolical scheme to annihilate the Jews because Mordecai, uh, Esther's uncle will call him, uh, scholars are confused whether his uncle or cousin, but he raised her and significantly older, so we'll call him his uncle, uh, uh, wouldn't bow down to Haman. And Haman, who was full of himself, says, I got you. And he gets this edict, law of the Medes and the Persians, going to get into this in a moment, that cannot be reversed, sends it all out. And before you know it, everybody's painted into, into a corner, including the king. The third word is the word crisis. 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 High water part of the book there. Where this document has been si signed, it is total mourning and devastation and heartache and it looks like the end is coming and that's when Mordecai comes to Esther and says oh, hold, hold, hold up sweetheart hold up you you you're not in the king's palace 
because of the shoes that you have or the wardrobe that you have or the mani-pedis that you get or to be eye candy on his arm. That's not why you're here. You're here for such a time as this. And she challenges him, her, and she's all in. And the fourth word is you've gone from favor, scheme, crisis, and now fourthly, demise. Talked about that last week. Your sins will always find you out. Nobody ever gets away with anything. If you are a manipulator, it's a matter of time before you too will be manipulated. What goes around comes around. And so this diabolical Haman who has put all this stuff together, God just ties the noose around him literally, and he is hanged on the very gallows that he made to hang Mordecai. But the job is not over yet. You know, actually, a lot of series on the book of Esther will end at chapter 7. Because we're going to get into an area that's a little bit dicey and full of theological controversy. is particularly chapter 9 here. But I think the beauty of the story, the climax of the story, are the last three chapters. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Today, uh, the final word is a word delivered. Delivered. I've entitled the message, Delivered, colon, Finishing the Task. That's chapters 8, 9, and 10. And of course, I know that's covering a lot of ground, just like last week, but it's one section, it's one thought, and this covers off and finishes off, off the narrative. How many of you remember Desert Storm? Well, you read about it if you were younger, Desert Storm. Well, you recall Saddam Hussein did not take George Bush Sr. seriously, did he? He had invaded Kuwait and had been warned repeatedly that what you have done is, is just an international act of, of bully. You can't do that. Well, he thought that, well, the West would just sort of like spit out a bunch of bravado and not really do anything. Well, little did he know the outwardly appearing mild-mannered George Bush had a heart that was pretty steely, and he put together this coalition. Warned him, warned him, warned him, warned him, warned him. And so finally, on uh, January 17th, 1991, Schwarzkopf and the boys pulled the trigger. They went in, and the war was really over in about five and a half weeks or so. It ended on February 28th, 1991. Uh, mission was declared accomplished with uh, quotes around that, um, you know, his mighty army was decimated, and the man had more bravado than he had substance. Well, in hindsight, however, and perhaps you've read this, many, many have commented on this, that in hindsight, now, you know, you're always, you're always more clear when you're looking back after something's over, okay? So I don't want to blame anyone's administration, but in hindsight, many suggest that the war was stopped prematurely, that perhaps... The coalition, should have, um, coalition forces should have gone ahead and marched into Baghdad and uh, removed and relieved Saddam Hussein of his power. And if they had done that, in hindsight, certainly it would have saved the world a lot of heartache and headaches. It's probably true. Well, what I'm trying to say is simply this. To win a major battle does not mean that you've won the war. Just because something is ended here doesn't mean that you necessarily want anything. And for our purposes today, think about the book of Esther. There could have been the high water mark in many people's mind is chapters, 
You know, that, that, uh, you get into chapter, uh, chapter 7, and, 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 and you know, uh, 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 Haman is dead. He's hanging on the very gallows that he made for Mordecai, and, and, and Mordecai is, is elevated, and Esther is elevated. Um, uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's over, isn't it? Right, right, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it over? Right, I've got my place here. I don't, I'm, we're, we're good. You're good, Mordecai. I'm good. It's over, right? No, it's not. It's not over yet. You're fine, but it's not over yet. It's not over yet. And so there's this task, this job that still needs to get done. And so for the sake of memory, I, I, I've, I've tried to put this fourfold movement or what it means to get the job done. I think there's, there's four elements to that. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, First of all, in chapter 8, we see undoing what has been done. I'll explain that in a second. The lion's share of chapter 9, we, say, we see doing what needs to be done. The latter part of chapter 9, we see remembering what has been done. And then that short little chapter, chapter 10, particularly verse 3, we see honoring the one through whom it has been done. First of all, in chapter 8, we see undoing what, what's been done. There's a little bit of a pickle here. There's a little bit of a tension. You've heard that statement, the law of the Medes and the Persians. Remember that? If you read the book of Daniel, you realize that Daniel got kind of like locked into that when they threw him into the lion's den. He couldn't reverse that decision because you can't reverse a decision. The Persians said once the king signs something, <clears throat> once an edict uh, is put out there, it cannot be reversed. And that's a situation in which we find ourselves here in chapter 8, verses 3 through 6. Since the edict to exterminate the Jews was still in effect, Esther realized that something had to be done. I'm fine. Mordecai's fine. We're honored. But my people are still, there's this death sentence over them. And the Persian Empire was huge. You didn't, you didn't send out some, no e-blast back then or whatever. It, was, it, just, it took oh, a long time to get information. I mean, you did it by, by a horse. How are we going to undo all of this? What are we going to do? Well, Esther begged the king to put an end to the evil. Look at verse 5. Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said... Uh, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. In other words, we, we, king, we still have a, a problem here. This is a major issue. This thing needs to be undone some kind of way. Well, the king does respond, but he, notice what he says in verses 7 and 8. Pay close attention to what he says. Verse 7, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. 
For the edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. What's going on here? You say, well, Crawford, didn't you just say the laws of Medes and Persians, it could not be overturned? Yeah, but there's a little technicality that the king knew about. Though Haman's decree could not be revoked, a second one could supersede it. So that's what the king was saying. No, I can't revoke this one. So I can't send out somebody that says it is revoked, but I can write another one. And what I last write will supersede that. So he said, the king said, look, Mordecai, I've given you, you, you authority. And he can't write it. I put my signet ring in. Just write it. And I have to pause here. There's an there's a interesting application. Basically, what he was saying to, to Esther and to Mordecai, he's saying, look, I've given you authority. Use the authority you have. Well, what, what are you coming to me about this? Don't you believe I've given you authority? I've given you power to address this. I've given you authority over this. Why are you, why are you doing this? Why are you crying in your, in, your, in your soup and wringing your hands? Why are you so anxious? I've given you authority and power. So it is with us. I wish that we would stop acting so blasted helpless as Christians. As if we don't have any recourse. As if we don't have any resources. Why do we let the devil bully us? Why do we let circumstances in life bully us? Why do we let issues in our own lives bully us? Why do we keep deifying our dysfunctions? Why do we keep doing that? Why do we keep being held hostage to our past? Why do we keep talking about, I can't do this, I can't do that, I don't, you don't know me, my self-esteem, what happened to me when I grew up, and all this stuff that happened to me in my life, why do we keep blowing that stuff up? We have authority. I'm not giving you some vain, empty, locker room, motivational stuff to speak here. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, for we don't, we don't, we don't battle in the flesh, yeah, in our own strength. We have no resources, but our, our resources are spiritual. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. More specifically, we've got the power of prayer. Use it. We have the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Yield to him. We've got the word of God, the promises of God. Apply them. You hear me? Why are we so defeated? We need to take that authority. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need help and we don't need counseling. We don't need perspective. We need all of those things. But I think we need to stop acting as if we're so helpless. Stop being so pitiful. You know, I, I'm not the world's best counselor, so probably you might want to come to somebody else. <laughs> Now, I just can't make you that don't know what's going on in my life. I just have a hangnail and it's distracting me and I don't, you know, I, I'm only playing a little bit. But have you ever gotten on the other side of something that, that bugged you and when you looked at back you were embarrassed by how much you let that control you? I've been there. You know, what was that all about? And a God who can raise a dead Jesus... And the same power that lives inside of you, do you think he can help you to overcome your lust? Really? Do you, do you think he can provide for you? 
use the authority that you have. Now, they write this new decree in verses 9 through 14 here uh, in, 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 in chapter 8, and basically it says two things. He gave them the right to protect themselves, this new decree. They put it together. The king says, fine, bring it here. There it is. That supersedes the other one. Go send it out there. Hustle. And so it, it gave them the right to, to protect themselves. And then secondly, um, gave them the right to annihilate and plunder any group that fought against them. So, no, no, the tables are turned. Now, you, 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 you can do this. And when the Jews heard about this, they were, uh, man, they were elated. Look at verses 15 and se- through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white and with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. <laughs> These are Gentiles. They declared themselves Jews. Whose side are you on? I'm on their side. For fear of the Jews had fallen, had fallen on them. The Jews were related. The rise and the power caused many of the Gentiles to become Jewish proselytes. That's what verse 17 is all about. They became Jew, Gentile proselytes, uh, Jewish proselytes. God's good hand of favor was becoming obvious to the world. And don't miss this. I know we can go on real quickly, but this is a very important point because this summarizes the theology of the peoples of God. You know, you've heard me say this here at the church. Uh, um, you say, what, what's the big deal about the nation of Israel? And you, you might feel, you know, is God a little bigoted? Is he racist? The Jews, the chosen people? What does that mean? Now, when you understand the theology of the peoples of God, why God has a people, much like why he has the church, what's that all about? Well, what it's all about, it's not that God is blowing up a certain group of people. It's that he's using that people, what his purposes are for that people is that they will honor and walk with him. They don't always do that. But they will honor and walk with him. And in so doing, the nations, the nations become jealous and they want to know what a relationship with God looks like. It's the same thing for the church today. And that's how you have to understand it. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, now are we better than other people? No. We're at the foot of the cross. We've given our hearts and lives to Jesus. But we shine, as Paul says in Philippians, uh, uh, Philippians 2, we shine as lights in the world. It's not about us. We're not the end games. The Jews are not the end game. They are just his people who would manifest his purposes to the world so they might know what it means to have a relationship with God. And although it doesn't spell it out here, that is what's hinted at here in, in, in verse 17 of, of chapter, chapter 8. So they're undoing what's been done. Number two, now we get to chapter 9, they're doing what needs to be done. And admittedly, this, this, this passage of Scripture is filled with controversy. All kinds of controversy, because this is a bloody passage. Here you find the Jews, you might read it, taking revenge. It's our turn now. They're actually fighting against those who would fight against them. 
And again, although the name of God is not mentioned in the book, he's behind the scenes, moving the scenes, and he's sanctioning this. And I'm not going to get sideways this because I that was struggling this past week as I was studying this passage. I said, you know, I could get into the whole idea of just wars and the bloody stuff and, and take it away from the, the larger piece. But I will say just a couple of things. Obviously, in verses 1 through 4, the tables were turned on the enemies of the Jews. The Gentiles became afraid of them, and the government authorities really helped the Jews. Helped the Jews. I would say this about the text. Now, you got to read it in its broader context. Go back to the edict and what Haman did. And the Jews were not necessarily the aggressors. These Gentiles were the aggressors. So when you, when you read chapter you read chapter 9, be sure to connect back over to chapter 3 and the rest of the narrative to understand that it's not the Jews who are being the aggressors, it's the Jews who are protecting themselves because the Gentiles, with that first edict, they were actually going to come after them. So they are protecting themselves here. The other thing that you need to understand, even though they were given permission to plunder their enemies. They didn't plunder them. They didn't, they didn't kill for money. It was all about protection. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, it says three times. Um, 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 verse 10, the last part says, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 15, the last part, it says, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 16, the last part, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So it wasn't about a selfish thing. This was about, this was about Justice. This was about a war. This was about protection. This was about staying alive. Now, let me top line a couple of things here that 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 begs a, uh, a, an observation. One is this: as you read this, as with all the other narratives in the Old Testament, where you find God going after the enemies of His people. It's pretty, pretty bloody. But here's what I want us to sit in for a while. I believe God allows this here in this narrative to underscore to us that God judges. And I'm going to say something more strongly here. God is holy, which means he is to be loved and feared. Did you hear me? Now, now, I want you to wake up here because this is a difficult thing for most of us to get our minds on. Most of us think that there are certain attributes of God that balance off or cancels off other attributes of God. That is wrong thinking. In other words, God's mercy does not cancel his righteousness. God is no less righteous because of mercy. God is equally righteous and equally merciful. One does not diminish the other. God's, God's love does not cancel out his justice. It doesn't. It can't. God is not less just because of love. And see, this is the problem that we have when we go through these attributes. We pick up our favorite ones. Well, God is love. Well, God is love. But that doesn't mean that he's less just. That doesn't mean that he's less holy. You say, well, by grace we've been saved through faith. That means that God's grace to me that means that he, he didn't judge me. Well, hold, hold, hold up there. Hold up. Hold up there. No, his judgment was satisfied. 
His just demands, the standard was not lowered. So how's that so? Well, you remember what is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You remember what's said in 1 John chapter 2, that, that Jesus became the satisfaction for the righteous standard of God. He paid the price. The price had to be paid. So as you read these narratives and you go back in the Old Testament and you see God judging people and God judging sin, I want you to understand something. That's there. Now, now you're not going to like what I have to say here, but listen to me. That's there to help us understand that we should fear. I said it. We should fear God. To fear him. He said, that's Old Testament. Well, no, it's not. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So again, I'm not unpacking or trying to go through all the arguments here, but what I am trying to say to all of us here, we got to be careful that we don't have, a, have, a, have, have sort of a partial brand of Christianity that does not tell the truth about God. And part of the reasons why so many of us accommodate sin in our lives is because there's no fear of God in our hearts. We somehow think there's no ultimate accountability for our actions. You know, and at the expense of over-spiritualizing this passage, and I realize I'm kissing the line here, but uh, I would even say that this is a picture of the absolute violent way in which we must deal with that which threatens our personal holiness and loyalty to God. It's a picture of that. It's a call to violently deal with sin. To violently deal with sin. God hates it. And we should be violent about sin. You say, where do you get that from? Well, that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, didn't he? He said, if your eye offends you, he didn't say get sunglasses and see if you'll look away. If your eye offend you, pluck it out. What did he say? He said, if your hand offend you, what do you do? He didn't say put it in your pockets or put it behind you. He said, cut it off. Now, is he literally saying pluck your eye out or cut your hand off? I don't think so. If, if that was the case, we have a bunch of blind folks and main people up in this congregation, including yours truly. Okay, so I, I don't think that he's, aren't you glad he ain't saying that? Yeah. But don't back up too much. Don't miss his point. His point is, I hate sin so much. that don't you, Crawford, dare accommodate it. Stop making friends with your lies. Stop entertaining your lust. Stop coddling your nasty attitude. Stop excusing your temper. We read these texts of Scripture in which God visibly uh, uh, tells us people to violently deal with the enemies of God. In the New Testament, he tells us to violently deal with the spiritual enemies of our souls. 
And I know this is all through grace, and thank God it is, but my, I, I, I just have to believe that some of us are, are being beaten down by sin because we have not made up our minds to fight back. We've accommodated stuff. Fight back. Fight back. Your life depends on it. Take a look at your heart. Take a look at your mind. Take a look at what you're doing. Take a look at what you're thinking. And fight back. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to keep that junk in your life. I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but I am talking about a passionate pursuit. Fight back. You can't overcome it. You don't have to accommodate it. And while I'm on it, we, we fight not for selfish interest, but for the honor and the glory of God. That's the reason why we overcome sin. We, we don't brag about how we defeated Satan. I, I, get, I get a little upset about that. I hear Christians, you know, I just, you got to be careful of this spiritual authority piece. It's, it's got to go vertical. We don't boast and brag about how we've defeated the enemy. No, we didn't fe- defeat him. The, the, the Lord defeated the enemy. He put the armor on us. He gave us the will to yield to him. We did it in his strength and in his power. So as we fight back and we face the, the, the armies, we do it from, from a submissive position to the authority of God and the power of the Spirit of God under the banner of the Word of God, all for the glory of God. That's how we fight back. Well, let me hustle on here. So the third part, they undoing what's been done, doing what needs to be done. But number three, remembering what God has done. So there's amazing victory. And at the end of this victory, there's a celebration, the inauguration of a feast. It's called the Feast of Purim. It goes on today, and I'll just read these verses beginning in verse 20. It says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adder. That's like March-ish in there. And also the 15th day of the same year. The same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another. And notice that last line, and gifts to the poor. Gifts to the poor. It's like when you celebrate your victory, I want you to empower others. Celebration should not stop with you. It's all about giving because you're grateful for what God has done for you. And by the way, this is called the Feast of Purim. That's, uh, you know, the Jews celebrate this to this very, very day, the very day. It was established by Mordecai and Esther. It was a two-day feast to remember the goodness of God in protecting his people. And that's what they do today. And by the way, it's called the Feast of Purim because it comes from, it comes from um, 
Haman's use of the word pure, back over in chapter 3, verse 7, the word pure is the word for lot. It was uh, the casting of the lot to determine the time of extinction of the Jews. So that's why it's called the Feast of Purim, P-U-R, pure is lot, and the Jews said, no, that was a day for our extinction, but God is using it for the day for us to celebrate our deliverance. It's that annual celebration. And they were to share it with the poor because God had remembered them. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a, do you take regular times to remember and cherish God's goodness and deliverance in your life? Do you do that? Do you do that? I want to suggest something to you. Now, we need to do this regularly, but I think we all need to have a personal, personal celebrations of Purim to celebrate God's deliverances and his victories in our lives. Something I started doing a number of years ago, I take my birthday. And if you look at my prayer journals on my birthday, I, I will just recount the goodness of God. What he's done in my life. Karen and I, we do this a lot on our anniversaries. My goodness, we celebrated 45 years and we went away this year. It was a pretty big deal, but a good part of that time was just talking about how God provided and what he's done for us. We need to take Thanksgiving time and obviously sit around the table and talk about God's intervention and what he's done for us. Christmas times. You know, it's in the rehearsing of God's goodness that it fills our hearts with gratitude and it expands our faith and our confidence. We realize how great he's been and it washes away entitlement. We magnify him. And I want to encourage us to do that, to do it regularly. Even as part of your day, you know, one of the things I've tried to discipline myself to do when I write in my prayer journals, the very first couple of lines that I write in my prayer journals, I've tried to discipline myself to do this, is not to begin with the struggles that I'm going through, not to begin with the challenges, and not to begin with the burdens of my heart. And I write about those too. But to begin with, Father, I thank you for... To begin there, and I, I, more often than not, when I start there, I, the issues are still ouchy and whatever, but there's more of a perspective when you get there. Has God been good to you? Has he been good to you? Anybody been delivered from anything? Listen to these words from David in and, and, and Psalm 18, and verse 1 says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Verse 6, in my distress I called upon the Lord. To, to my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Down to verse 16, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Anybody here ever been brought into a broad place? 
Bless his name for it. Remember what has been done in your life. It'll fill your heart with praise and gratitude. And then fourthly and finally, the narrative, this incredible book, ends with that short chapter over in chapter, chapter 10, honoring the one through whom it was done. Listen to verse 3 as the book wraps itself up. For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. <laughs> and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his, of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Well, the book of Esther ends by exalting and extolling Mordecai, once a hated Jew in the Persian Empire. Hmm. I don't know where Mordecai was at the very beginning of the book. Scholars disagree on all of that. But I do know where he ended up. God used him in a very, very, very powerful and meaningful way. And I want to ask you, is there anybody in your life that God has used as a source of great blessing and deliverance for you? Have you honored them? Have you honored them? I didn't say write them a thank you note. The sure appreciation is not the same thing as honor. Have you honored them? You think of people who have sacrificed on your behalf, who went out of their way, who poured into you, who opened doors for you, who wouldn't leave you during a hard, dark time in your life. They were there for you, who spoke up for you when you couldn't speak for yourself. Do you have those people in your life? Have you told them how much you love them? Have you told them how much their sacrifices mean to you? Have you done that? If you haven't, I want to encourage you to sit down and write a thoughtful email, not a cryptic one, but something that reveals your heart and your appreciation and your gratitude to them. The better thing to do is to go see them or call them, let them hear your voice. Share that with him. Mordecai was the great patriarch of the Jews for two big reasons. One, he spoke up for them. And number two, he put his life on the line for them. Are you speaking up for people? Are you speaking up for them? You know what? I was thinking about this this past week. I made a statement here a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, th there's some things that are worth dying for. And as I thought about that, I thought, yeah, I think in our lifetime, yeah, this is just, I mean, it's just kind of like out of the air. But I, I, I kind of think at this stage of my life, in our lifetime, and besides for your family and wife and this kind of thing, let's put that over here. I think in our lifetime, there may be a half a dozen times in the course of your life 
where God will put you in a situation where he said, if need be, Crawford, will you die for this? Will you die for this? And that God orchestrated in Mordecai's life, Esther's life. Mordecai said to Esther, uh, okay, you're telling me that you could die. You're saying you could die, but I'm telling you, we will die. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Mordecai was elevated because of that. You know, humility and godly character and courage is the pathway to impact and change. It's expensive. You, you, you're not going to make an impact, not, 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 not in terms of what God wants, by incrementally investing and in giving part of this or doing the stuff that you could do that doesn't cost you anything. That, that, that's not the life of an impact. Of impact. It's stuff you can do. I can fit you in my schedule. I can see you. Yeah, I can say yes, did I show up for this? Or, well, you know, you can help people out all you want to, but that's not a life of impact. Impact comes about by humility, godly character, and the courage. Say, I'll step in. Well, God honors those who place it all on the line to honor him. Well, let me just wrap up the series and wrap up this morning by saying I'm going to go back to these lessons. And you heard me in the early part of the series here. You know, um, obviously, uh, you know, they, they, they teach you when you preach or teach a book that there is one major thesis and big idea from the book, and that's what you should stick with. And that's technically that's right. And technically, the big idea from, from Esther is a sovereign care of God over his people. I got that. But I think that there are three lessons that are woven into the book, that, that it goes back and forth, and these three things that hit us. And I want to underscore these things. And whenever you think of the book of Esther, from an applicational perspective, I want you to hold on to these three lessons. They are these. Number one is this. No one can destroy what God wants to protect. No one, no one, nobody, nobody no one universally negative, no one can destroy what God wants to protect. That gives us confidence. And by the way, that goes two ways. That goes two ways. Number one, number one, you need to stop being so insecure about God's call or what he has for you. One of the things that freed me up, and I can't go into all the story, but this is over 30 years ago. One of the things that freed me up Freed me up from comparison, freed me up from competition, and all of this. One thing that freed me up was a series of experiences that I had, and God had to teach me a lesson that, Crawford, whatever I have for you, no mortal being can take from you. So stop it. Nobody. Now, the other side of that also is true. Be careful of going after people now. Um, if they're doing what God called them to do, you better back up. Because no one 
can destroy what God wants to protect. And this speaks to the area of confidence. The second lesson from this book is that evil and wrong will reap what they have sown. Always. This speaks to the whole matter of accountability. Always. 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 You, you, you know, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't mistreat people and not expect for it to come back to you. You don't have outbursts of anger and not expect it to come back to you. You don't lie and be deceptive in all of this and not expect it to come back to you. And what I've found, it comes back to you more and sometimes your children start paying for stuff that you did. And so in this case, I mean, the classic ultimate severe illustration is Haman. You, you, you got hung on the very gallows that you built for Mordecai. You're very dead and he has your place. Church, watch it. Watch this one. I see people doing stuff. You know, I see this all the time. I see, and I'm tempted, I see people doing stuff. I'm saying, don't they realize they're going to get that back? The way you talk to people, you act and respond to folks, you want to do that? Really? Usually the people that do that kind of thing, you can knock them over with a feather. They They can dish it out, but they can't take it. The third lesson is this. God's blessing and favor on our lives is meant to be a source of hope and deliverance for others. That's the whole issue of gratitude and justice. That's throughout the book. I've said it before and I want to underscore it. God, God's blessings are to glorify him and to deliver others. It doesn't stop with you. It doesn't stop with me. You know, this nonsense, I don't want to be a role model. Well, that's stupid. God's given you visibility and influence, and with that comes responsibility. And if God can trust you with blessings, he's saying to you that I'm trusting you to give. If he can trust you with recognition, he's saying, I've lent you power and influence to relieve the suffering of others. It's not about you. I'm trusting you. Mordecai got that message. Esther got that message. And the Jews were delivered. Do we get that message? Let's stand together. I um, want to say, as we always say, that there are elders and Stephen ministers and staff members in our church, and they'll be up here at the close of service for anyone who needs prayer. And please don't make a U-turn and go out. If you have a burden in your heart and it's something that you want God to do or you're carrying, that's what we're here for. This is called the church. It's called the body. 
And that's why we exist. And we'd love to pray with you. But I want to say this to anyone to come. But I also want to underscore. Earlier in the message, I said that uh, some of us may be accommodating sin. And maybe the Lord spoke to you. And maybe you need some strength to fight it. The Olan, the best disinfectant for sin is the light. And I'm not asking you to come and confess that or say what you're struggling with. That's, that's between you and the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. But I am encouraging you to come and say, hey, look, I got something in my life or some things in my life that I need to fight. Would you pray with me and help me to fight it through your prayers? I always think it's a shame that we lose spiritual equity when God speaks to our hearts. The service is over, and we go pick up our kids, we go in the, get in the car, we go rush out to get lunch or get on with stuff, and we lose that spiritual equity. I'm not saying that you coming forward is going to, I'm not manipulating anybody here, but I'm just saying that we need to act on what God is saying to us. Do something about it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace of God and thank you for your goodness and thank you that you have blessed us in ways that uh, go beyond our comprehension. I'm standing up here, Lord, just convicted because of, I uh, just think about how good you've been to me and Karen and, and the question comes, Lord, uh, what more do you want us to do with the goodness that you have placed in us and and I pray, Lord, that we will not succumb to selfishness, to spiritual hoarding, but there will be channels of hope and blessing for others to whom much is given, much is required. And so, Lord God, we pray that you'll lead us this week and guide us and protect us and give us what we need to serve you. Bless this church. This is a great church, great people, Father. But Lord, we know that you have so much more in store for us, and may we not miss it. In Jesus' name, amen.